Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to... And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Sean Craig. Jesse Brown. Formerly of Canada Land. Yes. That's it. The National Post, Global, The Logic. I miss anyone? No. Welcome back. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Sean, uh, today we're going to talk about the Margaret Wente plagiarism detection bot. It has taken a voluntary buyout from Canada Land. On behalf of management, we thank this bot for its years of service and numerous contributions to the field of journalism. We are going to talk about New Brunswick Dirty, more shenanigans out east. And we will talk about the Toronto City Councillors who hired a political hatchet man to do oppo work on a CBC journalist. Sean, good to have you here. Thank you so much. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Martin Wolf, Luke Slabud. Drew White, Erica Stacy, Perrin Grauer, John Wonderlick, Hannah Jackson, and Danu Neeson. My name is Danu. I'm from Calgary and I'm a university researcher. I support Canada Land because it really helps me stay connected with news from across Canada. 
and especially news that I don't think mainstream media really covers with energy and attention that it should. It's really meaningful for me to be able to support an independent news source in Canada that embodies what I want from the news and the media. Sean, this episode is brought to you and everybody else by HelloFresh. Uh, you like having boxes of food shipped to your house, don't you? I do. <laughs> Excellent. I answer. have no experience of that, actually. Yeah, but it sounds good, right? One thing that you, Sean Craig, may enjoy is making adobo pork tacos with tomatillo cilantro salsa yes. in your home. They do all the meal planning, shopping, prepping. You can focus on the love of cooking and eating and feeding people great food. It takes 30 minutes or less. You can get top-rated seasonal recipes and pre-measured ingredients delivered right to your door every week. This is great for weeknights. You can make family dinners stress-free, kid-friendly recipes if you like. Uh, everybody, the pickiest eaters, will love this stuff. The food is seasonal. The ingredients are pre-measured. It's delivered right to your door every week. I have had the pleasure of cooking with HelloFresh, and it does get you cooking stuff that you would not otherwise be cooking. Get 50% off your first box of HelloFresh when you go to hellofresh.ca slash CanadaLand50 and enter the promo code CanadaLand50. Once again, that is hellofresh.ca slash CanadaLand50, promo code CanadaLand50. Uh, I don't know, Sean. Margaret Wente is leaving the Globe and Mail. She's taking a, a voluntary buyout, and um, I have complicated feelings. Tell them to me. How do you feel? It's not all about me. How do you feel about the departure of Margaret Wente? Uh, I don't feel anything because I haven't read Margaret Wente ever, except for when two plagiarism scandals happened, or, you know, or when some article she wrote went viral. You know, she's not a resonant person for my generation because I'm a millennial. And and so, like, uh, my feelings about it are totally representative of the news media industry. Like, she's representative of columnists who are, you know, their average median age, I think, is like in the late 50s. And then the median Canadian age is 39 to 41, depending on whether you're male or female. So she, you know, she represents the end of this era that was, like, unrepresentative to me in an industry that I've been in. But as far as, like, a legacy, uh, you know, the only things I know about her are things that I hear from other people. And I do think that gets downplayed. I think she has a pretty remarkable legacy outside of the scandal. She was a managing editor at ROB. She you know, pioneered a sort of contrarianism in the 90s in Canada that was needed when she was a writer. You know, she's originally from, uh, from Illinois, I think. And there was a time in the 90s when she was, when a thing existed before the internet was what it is today, when there was a position which it was somebody that you would call a water cooler columnist, mm -hmm. which is what Margaret Wente was. Much like everyone would come into work you know, on Fridays and talk about friends and must-see TV, what was on, you know, the day before, when a Margaret Wente column dropped, if people, you know, at the office congregated around the water cooler, she was one of the things that generated social conversations and political conversations in the country. So she was a very significant and important person for a long time in this country. Having said all that, I feel like there's probably some importance in putting into perspective her entire career, what it means about columnizing, what it means about newspapers, and what it means about people like us that are younger that work in this industry. I mean, for somebody who doesn't read her, you, you know a lot about her. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, I think makes some great points. The only thing you said that I think I would take issue with is the, uh, the idea of her not resonating with millennials. I feel like half of her readers were people who fucking hated her. Right. And that's a talent, you know? She had a talent mm -hmm. for being a columnist who... You know, some portion of her readership, maybe half, maybe more, went damn straight. She's saying what I'm thinking. And the other half, I'm like, oh, fuck you. Like, no, I'm reading this. No. Oh, fuck you. You know, and uh, that kept her. You know, there's a lot of people who I think are mostly right, who write columns in this country. 
and who I do not read as much as I have been. Right? Do you mean center right political? Spectrum? No, I'm sorry. There are many columnists uh, in this country who I think oh, are correct. I sure, agree sure. with most of their beliefs, and I don't read their stuff as much as I read Margaret Wente because I already know what I think. So part of me is just kind of like, you know, respect the game. Part of this is like straddling that love-hate thing is something she's done well. I have complicated feelings because um, Margaret Wente is indirectly responsible for Canada Land. It was the plagiarism scandal. I mean, I had already been pitching the idea of doing some media criticism. And uh, this was the first one in 2012. Yeah, remember way, way, way back. The first plagiarism yeah. scandal. I sandwiched in some Margaret Wente references into a tech column because I was just so interested in writing about media and no one would hire me to do it. And that led to Steve Pakin inviting me on his show to talk about the Margaret Wente plagiarism scandal. And I sat there on this panel and everyone was pussyfooting so trepidatiously around the word plagiarism. And, and you know, and Steve likes to go right at a thing. But even he was like, is plagiarism the right word? And I just lost. I'm like, how is this person so powerful that the definition of plagiarism that would apply to any undergraduate student in any school in this country, we have a different language and we actually will like try to, you know, come up with different wording or a different term because it's Margaret Wente and we can't just call her a plagiarist. And I just sort of let at her and uh, I felt invigorated and unburdened. And I felt like, well, my, my career is probably over as I biked home from that appearance. And uh, yeah, like I, the feedback I got from that kind of fueled me to do this in the first place. And like, like you, I felt like she represents everything that I hated about the establishment in Canadian media, about the cronyism and the chumminess and the silence that people had and the, and the caste system of standards where some people were protected no matter what they did. So she's sort of an interesting figure to me in that way. Yes. By weird coincidence, she brought me into journalism, too, because that was when I'd, like, I'd start first seriously writing. It was for Vice at the time about Wente when that happened, right. if you recall. And it was because for me, it was as a foreigner is what was so resonant about it. Like I had just moved to Toronto in 2012 from Europe for a few years and I grew up in America. So I was used to like I'd seen plagiarism scandals, like you know, Jonah Lehrer or, or you know, Johan Hari in the U.K., and had seen papers hold their writers to account. You didn't necessarily have to fire them, but you did have to rectify it. And watching the Globe and Mail dig its heels in at the time, uh, I think people still don't remember that the Globe and Mail has only selectively acknowledged Margaret Wente's plagiarism. Yeah. There are several other incidents going back to the 2012 scandal. Like there's a there's a major passage lifted from Dana Milbank in the Washington Post in like a sure, 2009 call. Sure, the artist they won't, who exposed yeah, the, the Wente. The Globe won't even talk about that. Yeah. They, they acknowledged a very slim number of them. And the Globe's editor-in-chief, David Walmsley, you know, he was confronted once in public about it at some event and utterly cowered away from addressing it, right? Said, I won't talk about this in public. Come talk to me somewhere else. I think that was actually Jane Lipvinenko who used to work at Canada Land who, was, who asked that question. Yeah, and it was with Jane that we had, we actually did, uh, yes, I think it was bot. a reader who came up with, we actually had a plagiarism bot the that bot. scoured Wente's columns and compared it to everything else that had been written elsewhere and actually found some other lifted passages. But so seeing that scandal was just, a, it was like shocking as an alien outsider. And then when I was writing about well, it, it really defined person, what was different about Canada. Like, about Canada. Well, because I remember emailing, I emailed Charles Safe, who's a great uh, professor at New York University, uh -huh. and he conducted the on a Lair investigation for Wired magazine. And I just, I sent him the examples that Wayneo had done. You know, he's an expert in this sort of thing. And I said, do, you know, do you think this passes the smell test? And he, you know, he just wrote back, I can't remember, but he said, yeah, holy cow, this is plagiarism. They, sh they need to investigate her. Like they should review her work. Uh, yeah. And they never bothered with it. Right? They acknowledged two or three mistakes and moved on. And they did that again the second time. I think that you and I could have some kind of a like, 
J school conversation or even more like think PC. Like, you know, she really yes. represents the rift between one era of Canadian journalism and perhaps one era of Canadian society and the next. And let us not damn her. Let us just uh, put her in that context. But I'm actually going to go one step further. And I'm going to talk about the pleasure of Margaret Wente. Sure. Wow, that, that is an unsettling sentence. I think that there is a pleasure in reading somebody who, not just because it's fun to hate a columnist or hate their ideas, but I appreciate her the same way that I appreciate John Kay. I don't like unspoken things, okay? When I interviewed John Kay and he was taking over the walrus and I said, well, who, he was talking about how he's going to bring in new voices and new writers. And I asked too, and he said, well, Colby Kosh and Conrad Black. And, and I said, well, what about like, any people with any diversity? What about young people? And, you know, he said it. It was so refreshing to hear somebody just say it. He says, well, I don't think that non-white people really want to go into journalism these days. You know, he actually like, OK, I, I kind of figured that you thought that, that you had some weird philosophy about this. And he went on about how, you know, new immigrants want their kids to be doctors and lawyers and journalism isn't a white collar profession anymore. He sort of had this twisted logic. Of course, there are tons of wonderful, aspiring journalists of color and uh, from every nationality. And if you just want to go and find them, you can and then you can publish them. But it was so there was like there was a usefulness to John Kay and his candor in just like, oh, OK, this is what editors in this country think. And I often felt that in reading Margaret Wente's columns, like at least it's not hidden as in Canada, we often hide a lot of like she would just say, uh, well, Canada, you know, prioritizes certain Judeo-Christian values and, you know, uh, having a burqa and like, you know, that's that doesn't wash or or she would say when John Grayson was locked up, she'd say, well, you know, uh, sure, he's a Canadian who's locked up abroad, but uh, I don't like his politics and I don't like his gay friendly films that are government funded that nobody likes. So she just say that. And I, I find those opinions deplorable. But I know that a lot of people have them, you know, and uh, I think that like we can get into a thing about, well, why the hell would the globe or should the globe, you know, if the plagiarism thing aside, why <laughs> should they give a, a platform for that? I think that's a good question. But I almost more just feel like it's not that like one group of people's rigid, somewhat bigoted aunt shouldn't have a voice. It's that I kind of want to hear from everybody else's closed minded uncles and aunts as well. I think like, the real problem with Margaret Wente is that she was sort of presented as like she represents this country. You know, like there's a usefulness to hearing people say things that are wrong. Like I, I don't mind having space for wrong opinions. They, they help kind of keep the, the dialogue going. Does any of that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And it, it boils down to the usefulness of the job of a columnist in 2019. And what, you know, what, what does it have to do with the way we consume information today? Because when you think about the job of columnist, it's basically the easiest and cushiest and most coveted job in newspapers that you could possibly have. You basically, you know, you get to write two or three things a week. There's no obligation to do any reporting or any sophisticated research. You often get paid a six-figure salary. You can often double dip in a speaking circuit. You have no expertise. You have no techno, right? How many columnists at uh, any of the newspapers we have have any kind of academic credibility or expertise about anything that they're writing about? They've just been, you know, they came up through reporting or managing. A couple of them might have master's degrees in an area. And so you get unearned prestige, right? You haven't spent 10 years studying uh, political science or whatever. Mm -hmm. You you know, maybe you were a reporter for 10 or 15 years of that, but you don't, uh, so like the... Uh, there's all this unearned prestige. There's great compensation. There's a sort of level of permanence that you're afforded, which creates, it's basically a compression chamber for bad writing. Well, and um, it encourages and people to come into the office less and less to, you know, there was a time when she maybe put some research into these things. Then she just got lazier and started, you know, summarizing people's books. And then she just started stealing people's words. But, but I don't think that's necessarily even an indictment of her. It's just you're saying like, I'd rather hear other people's crazy uncles or crazy aunts. Yeah, exactly true. You get confined with this same small class of people, particularly because we're a small country. 
And they well, if, if a column is a sinecure, then sure. If it's something that you give somebody as a gift for their years of service and the fact that they're part of your inner club. But I just kind of want to hear from more people. Well, that's that's a legit idea, which people have floated, which is that a columnist shouldn't be a lifetime job. It should be a like a foreign assignment. Right. Right. It should be a termed thing. Yeah. You shouldn't I mean, be, you shouldn't be a columnist for 20 years. People kind of know what you have to say. Yes. And the idea that you need to gin up three ideas a week. Yeah. It sort just, of forces you to have takes. It's just a silly idea. Ooh, yeah. Man, it leads to a lot of laziness. And it was also like we live in an era where, you know, the whole reason that opinion columns happened, well, it was like 300 years ago when Whig and Tory, when all the newspapers were nothing but opinions. Yeah. They were telling what to politically say. And then in, you know, the 1830s, it was, uh, what's his name? Benjamin Day. It was this medical student who figured out it was cheaper to just get advertisers to put stuff, you know, what their events were going on in newspapers. And so that needed to be nonpartisan because you don't want to offend anybody. So he realized, oh, if you just list stuff that's going on and hand it out, people will pay to put advertisements in that. So that created the first modern, you know, North American objective style newspaper. And then slowly in the last 150 years, you've seen, you know, the division of editorial from opinion and news, which is involved in this modern newspaper. But opinion at the time was created in order to stimulate political discourse because that's what newspapers served a purpose for that. But now I can turn on Twitter, I can turn on Facebook, I can turn on television. The amount of places where I can digest opinion that competes with columnizing First of all, it's like has way more expert and interesting stuff going on. I can go on Twitter and when a international affairs story breaks, I can go read something by Amarnath Amarsingaram, you know, who's incredible, who can tell me from an expert opinion what's going on in Sri Lanka with radicals. I'd rather do that than read a column in the National Post or the Globe and Mail by someone who spent half a day reading Wikipedia articles. And so the amount of opinions that we have access to now and the quality of opinions that we have access to has kind of rendered the columnist job moot as well. Yeah. Uh, and so that, that, you know, that also has just led me thinking as she retires, good for her. She was, you know, great and very apt for a certain kind of era. It wasn't an era that had anything to do with someone my age. And so, but to her credit, we should flag this. I have been told by people at the Globe, she still does drive subscriptions. Subscribers do love well, and her. And we should probably and say we're talking like we're bidding her adieu. Yeah, it's true. She's she, not going anywhere. She probably will end up, yeah, I think filing freelance. I mean, there's like a bunch of other, there's going to be more layoffs at the Globe. There are five other people who left with her. Despite the, the media bailout, uh, Globe Mail is still get, getting rid of journalists and, and you know, et cetera. Um, it was but, more than five that left. It was five that were laid off. Five, and then uh, there how were- many, it was five that were laid off plus the voluntary plus buyouts? the voluntary buyouts, and right. we don't know how many of those there were. Right, right. They don't disclose that. Okay, so... Probably in the 10. She will still be writing her columns, I don't know, from Tuscany, uh, Muskoka? Is she 2-2 two, two, two from Muskoka? She and Greg Popovich are going to retire She will be turned into an together. algorithm and will be filing, filing columns yes. when you and I are old men. Bye, Peggy. Ciao, Peggy. Sean, you stirred up some trouble with us uh, four years ago that is only now uh, at trial in New Brunswick. I don't know if anyone remembers Larry's Gulch. I'm not sure if I remember Larry's Gulch, but I'm going to try to tell you your story that you reported for Canada Land four years ago back to you, and you'll tell me if I got the bones of it correct. Okay, Larry's Gulch is a uh, government-owned fishing lodge in rural New Brunswick. It, it, Salmon fishing? So, thank you. We're, we're trying to go for On less, the less words, River. not more. Just stop me if any of this is wrong. That's where I want to be interrupted. It uh, is a place where I believe George Bush went on a, a fishing trip. The elite meet at Larry's Gulch. Lorne Michaels? New Brunswick Liquor, a crown corporation, rented out Larry's Gulch. They're still subject to the same kind of privacy laws and whatnot. And every year in New Brunswick, a hotly anticipated bit of news is the uh, disclosure of the Larry's Gulch visitor list. It kind of tells you who government is cozying up to. Brunswick News International, series of newspapers owned by the Irving family, 
they, as journalists, they had a reporter who wanted to get his hands on this list. And when Brunswick News International finally got its hands on the Larry's Gulch guest list, one of their own newspaper it's, editors. Actually, it's Brunswick News Inc. Keep, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're not international. No, no. It's Brunswick News Incorporated. Incorporated. Just you call them Brunswick News. All right. BNI is what they're referred to in short. That is a welcome interruption. Brunswick News Incorporated. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to, because you kept saying the wrong name. I wanted to. Yeah, no, no, I appreciate it. Can I continue? Yes. Thank you. Brunswick News Inc. found out that one of their own editors was on this list of people who had visited. Now, a minor, is that a big scandal? Probably not, but it's always the cover-up, not the scandal. In fact, that didn't even break. Uh, I don't think that that they even reported on that. What happened was, as I recall, that uh, that editor's boss, the two of them were in conversation, man, my name is on this list, what are we going to do? And that editor's boss allegedly said, let's call our friend in government and have this stricken from the public record. And there's some dispute what was stricken. Was it just the fact that he was a editor of this newspaper or the email chain seems to suggest that there was an attempt to get his name off the list entirely. And the editor was fired from Brunswick News, Inc., And there is a wrongful dismissal suit, which is now in the courts. And as a result of this being in the courts, we are in the interesting position of Brunswick News. They are taking the position that this was totally improper. And they had every reason to fire this editor for doing such a thing, which is, I think, pretty much opposite what they were telling you at the time, that there's nothing to see here and nobody's done anything wrong. Please move on. Uh, There's a bit of detail in there that's wrong. Um, Clear it up. Clean it up. Yes, the the editor who went on the fishing trip wasn't fired. He resigned. He was the deputy editor of the Moncton Times yeah, the transcript. Edi- the guy who was fired was his boss, who allegedly, according to Brunswick News, was also involved in reaching out to Daryl Fowley, this uh, progressive gov- conservative government staffer, yeah. asking him to take yeah take my the guy who was off. fired was not the guy whose name was on the list. It was that guy's boss. It was that guy's boss? I think that's and what then I the said. oh, and then the other thing is that the release of that guest list was not an annual awaited tradition in New Brunswick. Sometime in the two thousands, it had, the government had stopped releasing the list, and so this was a big part of the scandal. If you oh, recall, yeah, when we right. broke it, and so when we broke it, the government decided to change tack, uh, reverse a decision of a previous government. It wasn't them to release the public logs. Oh, so our story actually got that as to become an annual thing. It led to it, uh, yes, to them changing the policy and they went back to releasing it on a regular basis. So that's how we learned, you know, we already knew that Lauren Michaels had been there, but it was just funny yeah, uh, because they publicized that Lauren Michaels were there, but he was on the guest list. And so there, and there was some debate about whether or not at the time, the guest list being released because it was rented by NB Liquor and, you know, and they brought a bunch of private beer companies that were there at the same time to this event, along with the editor, you know, that it was a private rental. And so they, well, they were made, trying to. And then the integrity commissioner said bullshit. And they know uh, uh, that. Well, the government ultimately, yeah, they decided it's a public facility. Yeah. So well, that, and at the end of the day, corporation. So. at the end of the day, yeah, at the end of the day, it's a public facility. And so rentals okay. should just be public. So you've been following Jacques Poitras's uh, coverage of the trial? As best as I can. Jacques's been doing a fantastic job. There was uh, one too much detail for me to keep that up I know to. you wanted to touch on. Because uh, what I'm interested in is the Irvings. And, you know, at the time, Jamie Irvings, you know, he's the publisher of Brunswick News. Was it the time? Yeah? Yes. And I believe it was Jamie Irvings. Uh, the fact that we mentioned Jamie Irving in the story that resulted in us getting a legal threat from Brunswick News, which they did not pursue. Did the Irvings come up at trial? Briefly, but completely unrelated to the case, it was, it was, as Jacques Potrat was reporting yesterday, in some of the testimony that was going on, Hogan, the guy who was fired, who's suing Brunswick News, his lawyer got someone who, who used to work at Brunswick News to describe the centralization of editorial decision making at Brunswick News, uh, which supposedly took place in 2009 and 2010, which is around the time that 
Jamie Irving took over as vice president. And so the claim that was testified in court this week that Jamie Irving took part in discussions which were about approving editorials appearing in all of the company's newspapers. Really? So the Yeah, so like a, a very key figure in the in the Irving family, which is the most powerful family in New Brunswick, uh, one of the most powerful families Having in a the sign off on every opinion. The so he was, uh, or at least he sat in, yes. He took part, uh-huh. and, you know, these were the meetings where all the editorials and all the papers were approved. Uh, and this was only testimony. I mean, we don't know if it's true, but uh, yeah, former Telegraph Journal, which is their flagship newspaper, a former editor there testified that there was, you know, the editorial was centralized around 2009-10. All right. While we're talking about the Irvings and Brunswick News and Jacques Poitras, for that matter, he's also covering this other thing, which raises questions about the Irvings' influence in the media, seeing as they are the media and the relationship and the conflicts with their own uh, energy business. What happened? What happened was a reporter at one of their newspapers got a leaked government document. It was a carbon tax document. It showed the carbon price impact on New Brunswick power and its ratepayers. Okay. So this got sent to a reporter. Reporter uh, published a story on it. And what happened? The government cracked down and cut a deal with Brunswick News that they would they agree, they signed a binding consent order agreeing that they would no longer publish anything that referred to this document, that they would destroy the document itself, delete or destroy the document itself. They are permanently enjoined from publishing or distributing any information from it. Uh, it is considered proprietary commercial information. Which commerce, which industry is affected by this? Well... Irving Oil Refinery and several large forestry mills in the province, which uh, includes some that are owned by J.D. Irving Limited. So that's nice that the government and the newspapers could get to an agreement and shake hands and play nice with each other. And that's, I guess, how it works in New Brunswick. It is. It should be stated that initially the Brunswick News was blocked from publishing the stories and then they agreed to the consent order. So, you know, in their own legal calculus, they may have agreed to it, but it certainly looks very strange. And the CBC has since published the screenshots of the document. They published screenshots of, yes, of that story in particular. But the claim was that at least, you know, from sources that Jacques had and, uh, and stuff that's come up at trial, the presumption is they had planned to publish more stories about this. One would hope so. Um, yes, that's one thing that we should, you know, as much as we're hammering on Brunswick News, we should mention like Brunswick News still does a lot of great journalism. It just won a Mishner Award. And, it's, you know, it's headed by Wendy Metcalf, who is a pretty respected and beloved editor at the Toronto Sun and Toronto Star. Yeah, that's absolutely moved out the Mishner Award being the top Canadian prize for public service journalism. And, uh, and but so and so this kind of aggressive reporting is, is absolutely what you'd expect of them because they're, you know, they're, those papers are stacked. Oh, they've got wonderful journalists. reporters, but, uh, you know, sometimes ownership gets involved. And, uh, and the problem being that, as, you know, listeners should know, may not know and go back in the Canada Land archives and listen to the episode with Jacques Poitras about his book Irving versus Irving, which is one of the best business books of the last decade, uh, that New Brunswick has a particular news deficit and that the Irvings control most of the yeah. community, local and major newspapers. And the only real primary competitor is CBC. Actually, and, this is a community where the CBC, I think, is invaluable, right? Like you would just have the Irvings if not and I CBC. Do, Yes. And in fact, I forgot. I, I mean, I looked up as far as the trial uh, that's going on right now. The only two publications that I saw that were covering it were CBC that had a reporter there. CBC was there and the francophone newspaper based out of uh, Moncton, La Cadine Nouvelle, was there. Uh And, And that's it. Well, when uh, Wendy Metcalf, the editor-in-chief of Brunswick News, Inc., uh, was accepting her Mission Award, Jacques noted in his reporting that uh, in her speech, she said that without journalism, secrecy would be rampant, truth, trust, transparency would be scant. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. 
And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity and they are doing cutting edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Sean, every Canadian has a right to be annoyed by Canada Land, uh, to love Canada Land, to hate Canada Land, to listen to Canada Land. But many Canadians don't even know about Canada Land or Commons or Oppo or our articles or Wag the Dug. There's a lot of people who just don't know that we exist. We make all of this free stuff. That's that's the job we're in. And a lot of people uh, don't know about it and we want them to know about it. So we have been reminding people. Tell somebody who you think might want to know about Canada Land, about Canada Land. Tell somebody about the Wag the Dug live podcast taping at the Toronto Outdoor Art Fair, another free thing that we are providing to the public in collaboration with the Toronto Outdoor Art Fair. This is happening Saturday, July 13th at 3.15 p.m. at the Toronto Outdoor Art Fair, a fantastic event at Nathan Phillips Square. If you want to see it at that, just Google Doug Ford versus the Arts. The Eventbrite link will be the second thing that comes up. Doug Ford versus the Arts. Come and listen to Jonathan Goldsby and Allison Smith talk about Doug Ford's disastrous impact on the arts in Canada. And say hi while you're there, July 13th. And come say hi to the rest of Canada Land at Booth 267. Sean, you are a Canada Land OG. You know about Duly Noted. You were here for the birth of Duly Noted. W was I? I really don't remember when you, it started. <laughs> Do you have something you want to duly note today? Yeah, I actually want to be nice to the Globe and Mail, and I just want to duly note just in praise of letting writers write about things they love, which the Globe and Mail has been doing for the last week with uh, television critic John Doyle, who I think is secretly one of the best soccer writers on the planet. He's uh, been covering the Women's World Cup, and he just he wrote a phenomenal column this week about the Women's World Cup's loss to the Swedish team. And just reading him, you know, he's, he's written a book on soccer. He grew up loving soccer. And part of the thing about the Globe, you know, buyouts that have taken place is the Globe sports section, particularly in the last five, 10 years, has been totally decimated. It's a newspaper that doesn't really publish a lot of great sports content. And it was just a nice thing to see a writer who so lovingly cares about something unleashed on the Globe's pages, which are sometimes sort of conservative in their prose. 
And just uh, reading him talking about the, there was a penalty kick that was missed by Janine Becky. And he talks, he calls her a gifted player with a moving ball, swift of foot and good at finding space. But she does not have a powerful kick. She just doesn't. And like all the intimate knowledge that he has of the game, because he watches it so much, just comes out on the page. And he talks about how, you know, the Swedish goalkeeper Hedvig Lindahl is a wise veteran. So she saw this bad penalty kick, which was, you know, it was fine. The kick was accurate and low. But a veteran goalkeeper knows that. They know to go low on a bad kick like that when the ball's low. Uh, where they can reach and where the shot lacks ferocity, as he writes. And so it was just like it was a wonderful treat to see, first of all, women's soccer, which is this amazing nascent sport uh, that deserves more attention. You know, the Globe put such a great writer who cares about it on it. And so this is, I just want to say, in praise of newspapers, putting people who love things and letting them write about them. And, in and, and it's, been a, it's and, uh, been a real treat yeah, reading yeah. John whenever he writes about soccer. I'm a, a sports illiterate with a soccer obsessed kid, and so I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out what this thing is all about so I can uh, have conversations with my kid about it. But uh, I'll check out John Doyle's column, duly noted. I'm going to duly note our own stuff this week because uh, a project eight months in the making. Actually, Sean, you'll know it's years in the making. We started to look at the Kielbergers when you were here years and years ago, and and then Jaron has been doing his investigation of the WE organization as his primary focus for the last eight months, and we have uh, just published, as many of you know, we're going to tell you about this every way we can, and I think we have one more report on it uh, on Monday's podcast, but, but the main report and the most thorough report, and really, I think, one of the strongest pieces of written journalism we've ever published uh, is on the website right now. It is called Inside the Cult of Kielberger. Give it a read. Duly noted. Okay, here's another yarn that we're going to try to work through, okay? <laughs> we're going to jam this one in. Yes. I love this story. Oh, uh, okay. Let me see if I Good, because got... you, can, you can lead the charge here. All right, let me give this a shot. Go back in time a little bit, and you've got these two Toronto City councillors, Justin DiCiano and uh, Councillor Mark Grimes. CBC starts running stories about them, examining their relationship with developers in Etobicoke. This reporter, John Lancaster, reveals that both of these councillors have pushed to rezone lands in a way that would benefit this developer called Dunpar. So what's up with Dunpar? One of the councillors bought a house from Dunpar and paid somewhere between thirty dollars and $66,000 less than market rate for this house of this developer who he has benefited in his work as a councillor. And separately, the other councillor, Grimes, appeared in a promo video for a condo development and uh, Toronto's Integrity Commissioner ultimately called that improper. So CBC is, uh, is revealing this stuff about these councillors and what do the councillors do they hired Warren Kinsella. He is, uh, of course, a political hatchet man, formerly. Uh, he'll tell you at any opportunity that he worked for Jean Chrétien in Jean Chrétien's war room. He likes to call himself the the, the Dark Wizard. What is he? The Dark Master? Prince of Darkness. Prince of Darkness. Okay. There we go. And He's so, also the yeah, that's bass what you do. player in one of the original Canadian punk bands, the Hot Nasties from Calgary, and he Alberta. And in the Hot Nasties. Yeah. What does Warren Kinsella do when you're a city councillor and you pay him a retainer of $10,000 to try to go after a journalist? Kinsella did a bunch of stuff. He did oppo research on one of Grimes' political opponents. Uh, he disseminated pertinent information on a confidential basis to competing media, in particular the Toronto Sun, setting up myriad internet properties to promote helpful news coverage. That sounds like an AstroTurf campaign. Talking points for the councillors when they were uh, identified with further corruption charges. Kinsella told them what to say. Posting on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter to promote the councillors. Letters to the editors sent by other people. Drafting a complaint to CBC's ombudsperson. Why do we know all this? I thought the PR hatchet guys like Kinsella were supposed to operate in darkness. He is the prince of darkness. Because, <laughs> because the councillors stiffed 
Warren Kinsella. They didn't pay their bill. I think they paid the $10,000 retainer, and then there was a $16,000 bill after that. They didn't pay up. Kinsella sued them, and in a statement of claim, he reveals all of this dirty shit he was doing for them. And it's all coming out in court, including, including says Kinsella, Diciano became very heated and angry after another CBC News report and made threatening remarks about CBC reporter John Lancaster. And uh, Kinsella said, hey, hey, bro, calm down. Take it easy. So uh, that's how it works, I guess. It's, you know, sometimes you get a glimpse of how things work and uh, or are alleged to work. And this is one of those cases. I don't even know what to say. This is just a... <laughs> Does that even actually surprise you? No, it doesn't. And I think it's more a story about the two counselors than it is. The only thing I'd mention that wasn't uh, mentioned in your whole recap, too, is that Kinsella, you know, in his in his thing mentioned part of their job was to sort of feed opposition research to the Toronto Sun. And that's a place where he happens to be a columnist. Uh, there's nothing wrong with him being a columnist there necessarily. You know, this doesn't bring up a point about Warren Kinsella. It just brings up a point in general about having strategists and crisis communication firms write in your newspapers on a regular basis. Like the Toronto Star has the same problem with Jamie Watt, who writes in there all the time. And so involving people in your, you know, in your editorial side, as the Sun has in Kinsella's case, who have vested stakes, you know, working for either corporate, political, whatever, uh, interested parties. That's the interesting journalism question for me that came up in this. I think there's an interesting journalism question just about like, I'm not ready to just say like, oh, yeah, that's just how it's done. We pick off journalists. We hire experts to try to uh, go after journalists. I think that there's an increasing practice of journalists getting targeted when people don't like what they have to say. And rather than rebutting or dealing with it in the discourse, hiring somebody to try to smear them through a back channel. Of course, I've had uh, my own troubles with this yes. and probably I'm speaking from an emotional point of view as well. But I, I do feel like we're seeing more and more of this. I think journalists are, it's kind of the same point you're making in different ways. Journalism is vulnerable in that you can get those messages past editors in a way that you didn't used to be able to. And I think that journalists are vulnerable in a way that like, I think powerful people would have to think twice about targeting like a CBC journalist or a journalist with a major news organization because you wouldn't want to make an enemy out of that news outfit if you really felt that they had power beyond just that one individual. And I think that there's just an increasing willingness on the part of the powerful to, uh, I think that Trump has emboldened people to target journalists. And I yes. think that we're seeing we're seeing campaigns against journalists. Although, to be fair, at least in this case, it looks like Kinsella is the one who tried to calm the counselor down from the physical, from stop, the, well, yeah, I don't know if it was a physical threat, threat, but yeah, don't the, threaten threat the journalist. Threat. Yeah. Like maybe don't do that. Yeah. Um, you know, in part because he used to be a journalist himself. So sure. Probably... Have you ever, uh, by the way, have you ever been, uh, tempted to go to the dark side? You, you would make a hell of an oppo researcher. Or, uh... Oh, to make money. Ah, yeah. I just need to make money. That's the, that sounds like <laughs> a yes. That's the life of living. No, I'll probably just end up being, a I don't know, working on a, a meatpacking line or something. All right. Journalism's loss. Meatpacking Industries Gain. Thank you, Sean. That is your Canada Land Shortcuts. You can email me about it at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. Sean, where can people find you? Yeah, I don't know. Google me or something. Okay. Our website is canadalandshow.com. That is where you will find Jaron Kerr's report on the WE organization. It is well worth your time. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, if our journalism is something that you are glad exists in the world, uh, know that we can only do it because we have supporters on Patreon and we need more of them. Go to patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Help us out. We would love to send you ad-free versions of our podcast.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.